nudge and push your brand and make some progress. The idea of this wholesale rebrand where magically we're something different today is honestly psychologically absurd. I applaud these companies for experimentation. If the experiment is not going to like tank the company as a result, and if he's survived to tell about it, but I do think that you have to make sure you have market permission to do it. From Orion X, this is the Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hi, everybody. Marketing Podcast, episode 23. I'm Shaheen Khan with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug? I'm doing great, especially since we're back in another prime number episode. My favorite prime number, in fact. <laughs> so on the docket today. Let's start in the grocery store. Mike Fox posted on Twitter a question about why is it that you can never find the ice cream cones next to the ice cream in the supermarket? And, uh, you know, it's a valid it's a valid question, and I thought it pretty fun. So, all right, we go off on these weird tangents every now and then. This is a weird tangent. brief, but weird. Uh -huh. um, which is, uh, you know, what's the problem? What my comment back to Mike was, I think they've got an odd challenge in that if you look at how much ice cream sells, the amount of ice cream cones that sell is going to be a tiny portion of it. Uh -huh. And so they're very out of whack. So even though it might make complete sense that ice cream cones would be right next to the ice cream, if you're the ice cream cone maker, that's what you want. But if you're the store trying to maximize your real estate, I bet they find out that that doesn't work so well for them. Mm. That's a starting theory on, on ice cream cones. After a bit of a conversation we had pre-show, mm -hmm. I was also starting to think in terms of what does it look like from the vendor view and the retailer view. And then really the problem, it seems to me, is how do you market an item that is part of an ensemble set, but it's an optional part? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like you can have ice cream without the ice cream cone. Mm -hmm. And then if you are going to have it with other things, you've got a dozen different choices between toppings and sauces. And then a cone is like one item. How do you market that? And maybe there's some opportunities there to market that better. Well, I think there, there almost always are. I, I worked with a guy who did packaging at one that did a lot of retail packaging. And at one point in time, they had taken a product that was in the main shelves, but was often used, I think, for making salads, if I remember right. And they repackaged it in a way that it could be put into the produce section near the salads. And their sales just took off like crazy that moving it into the right place made sales just boom. And this question of where do you go is a big deal in retail. because And it fits with an innovation challenge. Because the minute you do anything innovative and you go into a retail store, well, you've got this structured store with a whole bunch of assumptions in it. And so I'm going to go weird here. I, went, we, I did the drill doctor, drill bit sharpener, right? Mm -hmm. The drill doctor, drill bit sharpener gets into every Home Depot in the country, you know, on the back of the advertising we did. The problem is, where would you look for something to sharpen your drill bits in a Home Depot? Right. Oh, there's no aisle for that. You know, there's no category for that. So is it next to the drill bits? Is it next to the drill motors? Is it next to the grinders? Because actually, it's kind of a grinder-like activity. Hmm. And it's a serious problem. And what Drill Doctor did is we had an ad 
And with advertising, it really helped because that led people to come into Home Depot and ask for the product, and then they would find it because people didn't naturally know where to find it. But if they're not asking for it and they don't know where to find it, you've got a real problem and your stuff is not going to come off the shelves in retail and you're not going to get the sell through you want. Right. So really the trick is to make it easy for the customer to think of it Mm -hmm. when they're buying something else that is going to drive the sale. In this case, as close to ice cream as possible. But then where do you put it? Because it's not a frozen item. You can put it at the end of the aisle, but then that's limited shelf space. And it's hard to compete with caramel sauce. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh doesn't require refrigeration, probably is a higher price value, probably you buy it more often. So it's a challenge. But I believe in agreement with what you're saying, I think you're absolutely right, that you have to make it easy for the retailer and make it worth their while. Yeah. Because you got competition and real estate is scarce. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, you know, you really have to approach this thinking about the retailer and their economics. So, I mean, my guess is that ice cream cones are not a major contributor to retail profit. So you're going to be in a weak position going into the retailer. You have to figure out how to work with that, you know, how to make the retailer's life easy with what you do. You're not going to be able to go in there and demand premium space because really the retailer, if you demand premium space, will say, okay, well, pay me this much for it. And then you'll look at your sales for the retailer and go, oh, that doesn't make any sense, you know, because you're just not getting paid enough to do that. So you're not making enough money to do that. Or is it, Doug, that there's a market opportunity that's being missed? Why are we not having high-end, artisanal, high-value, mm-hmm. chocolate-covered, you know, this particular shape, organic, mm-hmm. made of quinoa? Mm-hmm. Why are we not having them? Maybe that's like what could revive this area and make the profitability. And maybe that'll cause some ice cream sale rather than the other way around. Yeah. I mean, I think that's possible. And it could, you know, if you, if you can increase ice cream consumption a little bit, you're going to make a lot of progress. Certainly the ice cream market, from what I know of it, which isn't that much, but from just observing in the store, it's been driven by clever ingredients and mm. by you know healthiness and health growth. And, and then there's actually been a portion of it that's done really well over the last four or five years of really, really rich and great tasting ice cream. Mm. So you've got these kind of different trends. And so it's all the ice cream activity is all there. Yeah, that always leaves an opening for somebody to wedge in with something new. And maybe it's not literally with ice cream cones. Maybe it's with ice cream cups that are made out of those waffle cone style material or something like that, that kind of combines them into something clever, something different, something eye-catching. It seems like there is always opportunity, actually. Right, right. And the question is uh, somebody being deeply enough involved in ice cream to identify it and figure out how to pull it off and care about it. And uh, when that happens, I think we'll see ice cream cones come back in the supermarket. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can get pre-coned ice cream in the freezer. Yeah. And you also can get ice cream that have cones, you know, scattered around as a taste. So maybe they're moving up the supply chain. That path has been taken. Maybe the down supply chain is an opportunity too. That's true. They're integrating the supply chain. Which brings us to a whole new supply chain, don't you think? Yeah, it does. Yes. Shall we talk about Tiffany and Nike? Now, yeah. we're, you know, we're moving from the ice cream freezer section to exclusive jewelry. But this week, Tiffany and Nike started releasing photos of the shoe that they're going to be bringing out in Tiffany under the Nike brand. And uh, it was kind of all over Twitter there for a period. And of course, being Twitter, there was no lack of opinion about it. In the yeah. Twitter sphere. But what do you think? Well, I thought that 
there is no downside for Nike. Sneakers have become fashion items as shoe makers need to be creative like ice cream cone makers need to. And they become collectibles. They even have NFTs, non-fungible tokens of shoes. And for Nike to land another luxury brands is not a bad thing, is a good thing. From a Tiffany standpoint, however, to me, it's more of a risky or daring either experiment or strategy. And I don't know whether it's an experiment, whether it's part of a expansion strategy, or is it part of a repositioning of the brand? I don't know what they mean to do with it, but you had an example of another experiment that done a couple of years ago. Yeah, well, yeah, because actually, you know, they got bought by LVMH early in 2021. And in July of 2021, they came out with a campaign that was a rebrand campaign. And I, I will control myself. I'm not a real fan of rebranding, partly because that term is just far too expansive. What you can do as a company is you can adjust and shift and nudge and push your brand around and make some progress. The idea of this wholesale rebrand where magically we're something different today is honestly psychologically absurd because people don't work that way. But Tiffany did it. In July of 2021, they came out with their new campaign, which was titled, Not Your Mother's Tiffany. Now, the snarky ones among us, me included, on Twitter, observed that Not Your Father's Oldsmobile didn't turn out so well for Oldsmobile, so we're not sure why they picked that title. But it's a series of ads, and you can find it online, you know, just a search, Not Your Mother's Tiffany, and there are, you know, young women in jeans, and I think your observation was they look a little bit like Gap clothing in kind of how they're clothed. Yeah. What they clearly announced is they're trying to go younger. And a brand like Tiffany does get a problem. They get well known for being collected by the uh, older population that has loads of money, but that population always ages and eventually passes away. And so you've got to continue to bring new people into your brand. I'm not, myself, I'm not too happy with the idea of of thinking what that means is you go get 20-somethings or young 30-somethings. I think that they stretched a bit too far, a bit too fast. And I expect that that's not really going to turn out well for them. But I guess that what's going on with Nike is probably an extension of that idea. We want to try to bring younger people to the brand. Therefore, as Tiffany's, we're trying to show that we're in touch with people who are different than our traditional buyer. So I don't know how that foray into casual youth clothing line turned out. There have been many brands that have come and gone in that world. Benetton, Gap, ACA Joe, NAFNAF, a whole raft of them. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, Levi's, Gap, these are the guys that carry on. I think this one with Nike has better shot because mm-hmm. shoes really are becoming jewelry, yeah. a fashion, luxury. And to align yourself with the market leader, there is not a bad idea. And it could bring in other demographics. But, you know, the point you raise is also how difficult it is to expand or move the meaning of the brand, especially one that is so entrenched like Tiffany's. You know, I mentioned to you the campaign that was around 2000 with Lazy Boy, where Lazy Boy recliners decided to go young. And so they came out with ads which featured leopard skin love seats that didn't recline. And it was really pretty absurd. It just made no sense at all. Had they come out with what they were actually making, which was some really nice craftsman style recliners, 
that makes complete sense. Look, there's a fresh new lazy boy in town and it's this craftsman recliner. Okay, I've I got that. I'm willing to go there with you. But mm. to try to take me to, you know, I'm not going there as a customer. You know, J.C. Penney's had this problem when Ron Johnson came in and did away with all sales. By doing away with all sales, they're, you know, the sales tanked, honestly. So mm. I want to come back though, to one thing here. And, and I'll tell you, I, do, I don't think this is a disaster for either company. I think it is an opportunity maybe for, I actually am a little bit on the opposite side from you. I think it's a more of an opportunity maybe for Tiffany if their overall works, you know, and it's kind of, if it's part of that overall, if the overall works, then, you know, it's a good thing to do. My concerns with it are more long-term and more nuanced, that if you're Nike, a move like this that's so highly public moves you one step further away from your athletic roots. And you have to be sure you're doing the right thing to do that because these sneakers are not athletic looking. Tiffany's nothing about Tiffany Reed's jocks shop there. Those were the valid comments I saw on Twitter of if you're Nike and trying to manage your brand, how does this fit within the long-term arc of your brand? It may just be a flash in a pan and not matter. I have a different view. I think that Nike is targeting the collectible market where mm-hmm. the shoes aren't meant to be worn. You get them, you display them, you cherish them, and you're enjoying them that way. So from their standpoint, they're getting the benefit of a real luxury brand that says, hey, we need a shoe. Right. Shoes are now becoming jewelry and mm-hmm. this partnership makes sense. From Tiffany's standpoint, obviously it accelerates their path to market because now they can plug into mm-hmm. all the Nike buyers that are collecting and it can draw some of them into the store. And it's just another jewelry item. Mm-hmm. And if goes out of fashion, then we just phase it out because no different than a certain kind of ring or a certain kind of dish or something, right? So I think that this one has a lot of potential. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think the other example of, you know, not your mother's Tiffany's, that seemed, as you said, to not benefit from market permission. And I think that's the thing is that I applaud these companies for experimentation. I think it's good to experiment. If the experiment is not going to like tank the company as a result, and if you survive to tell it, tell about it. But I do think that you have to make sure you have market permission to do it. That's a really good way to say it. I think that companies kind of we you know we believe we own our brand, but you know the minute we come out with a brand and start making our products into a unified brand, our customers take on some ownership of the brand. So that ownership shared, and we can't just do whatever we want with it because it's somewhat owned by our customers too. Exactly, we right. have to do it in a negotiation with them, in a sense, you know. Yeah, but that's right. um, having said that, should we talk about marketing as a science? Because there's been a lot of talk about marketing as a science recently, yes. and invalidly, and importantly, there's been talk about this. And I think that uh, it's kind of important to start with the fundamental basic, which is. What would it mean if marketing were a science? Because I think that the term science has so many meanings within the general population. The question is, what is a science? And uh, we'd have to start there talking about it. Yes, there are definitions of science. One that I like is that you come up with a model that is interpretable and generalizable outside of where you interpreted it, so to say. And the example that's put forward is like F equals MA, Newton is sitting under a tree, an apple falls, mm-hmm. and he says why, and he kind of does runs experiments, and he comes up, ah, force equals mass times acceleration. And that 
formula seems to be pretty valid. And then you're on the surface of the moon and you apply the equation and it still works. Now it is generalizable and it also you can interpret on what that means. The other piece of science is the synergy between theory, which is you have an hypothesis, mm-hmm. an experiment where you get some data, and then increasingly you can do computer simulation to test drive and see whether the theory can answer the questions that it raises. And that goes back to Galileo. Before that, we were just philosophy. Mm-hmm. But now he says, well, let me, that's just a hypothesis. Let me test drive that. Let's see whether the data backs it up. So now you get kind of that triangle theory simulation experiment. Mm-hmm. And then increasingly now with AI, you can actually do more with the data that comes out of those experiments. So to me, that's sort of the science, predictable, interpretable, generalizable. You walk away feeling like, I really grok this thing. You know, mm-hmm. two plus two really is four. Well, I think maybe as you as you say that, I think the you know the distinction that strikes me is this question of grokking the thing versus predicting what's going to happen for my business. And I think this is one of the places we get kind of caught up when somebody says, "Well, it's a science." Is the belief is that if it's a science, it would make everything predictable. So that I could say, all right, well, I'm going to do this approach to my marketing. And as a result of that, this is absolutely going to happen. Byron Sharp wrote an article at one point where he looked at different, the two methods essentially in marketing science that seem to be out there right now. And one is that comes out with these absolutes that are designed around predictability. The other being that the science produces an understanding of the situation in a sense, that we understand, we grok, this is what's going on from it. And his observation was that the predictable science in marketing isn't very replicable. So the people who say, well, if you do this, it's always predictable, turns out, you know, those don't replicate very well. And that, uh, you know, he sees the, you know, saw at the time that the big real potential for marketing science is to explain the kind of situations we're in. You know, and really, marketing is so complex that if we can grok what's going on, we've got a major advantage over anybody else because it's you know that's tricky. So I I kind of like that duality because I think for marketing that's where it is. You know, the beauty of F equals M A is it's also prediction that that equation for gravity is so well understood that you can turn around and you can literally use it in equations to predict what will happen and then do it, and you'll see that that's what happened. I don't think marketing science is going to get to that point. Well, my view is that marketing is too complex to be a science because it's got too many facets, some of which are squarely art, you know, magic, maybe even some voodoo. Uh-huh. Some parts of it are very amenable to hard science. Press this button and something happens very predictably. So my view is that parts of it can be science. Mm-hmm. And if you're focused on that single part, then have at it, use it, but don't expect it to move, quote, marketing. So it's like a marketing is an organism mm-hmm. where it's got 200 components and like five of them are predictable and science. Okay, nice. Good luck. Thank you. But the rest, you're still going to need more than just a formula. Yeah, I, I actually have used a lot of the sharp results in making choices about where and how to place media. And, you know, media buying, really expensive. It's your big bottom line number. Often I found companies will end up spending more on paying for media than they will on buying parts to manufacture their product. 
just because that's, you know, I mean, at, at times my agency was the single largest vendor to a company because media is that expensive. So, yeah, we really would like some science around media to help explain it. And, you know, Sharp has done some really good work around how should you plan your schedules, you know, what can you anticipate coming out of media experience. Once a campaign's running, we can get pretty good at predicting that if we spend another $100,000, we'll probably get about this much back from it. And it's that kind of predictability becomes pretty straightforward once you're in the market. What people, I think, often miss is that with media, before you have any experience, when you're going into the market with a brand new product and going to introduce it, the predictability is impossible. You just simply have to get it in the market and start seeing what's happening. You know, it only becomes reliable after time and not in the beginning. So I think it's kind of misleading. And maybe the reason it's so popular, though, as an idea is that marketing is such a frustrating area for companies. It is the one place where things happen in fuzzy ways, where unexpected things happen, good or bad. And, you know, in reality, I think the idea sells particularly well because companies really wish that all of marketing was scientific. Yeah, no, I think the other, this may be a time for the sound effect for our recurring data part. Ah, yeah, is that really? we, you can't be scientific without data. And the quality of data in marketing is all over the map. And the completeness of data in marketing is actually not all over the map. It's squarely on the side of the map where you don't have enough of it. And then yeah. you add the other problems with data. So that, that gets in the way. Even if you are scientifically armed, mm -hmm. if you don't have the right data, you're going to be led astray. So at the end, you look like you're lost in jungle. You don't know where to go. You can't sit still. You got to go somewhere. But you're walking blindly and you hope that your previous experiences can guide you and you have a hunch that works out. Mm -hmm. And the more of that experience you have, the better you can kind of find your way out, right? I think people find it funny that I, you know, here I am, I've, I've got two mathematics degrees and I worked in aerospace for a bit. And the longer I work in marketing, the less I believe is predictable. And that's because I am a mathematician. I look at this stuff and I go, no, 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 we, we don't know that. Or no, you can't measure that. And I think just on the data stuff, to be clear too, part of the reason we lack that data in marketing is that marketing affects are an accumulation of a lot of little tiny things influencing individuals, affecting what happens in their brain, you know, these kinds of things. So that when we have a really great marketing program, it happens through a whole ton of little unmeasurable effects. And, you know, that they're so small, you just can't measure them. Or they're so individual, humanly personal, you can't right. measure them. Yeah. And so it's not that we aren't trying. It's the fact is you can't measure some of that stuff. You know, it goes with Deming's observation that much that matters in business is not measurable. And he completes that thought with, and yet we still must manage it. That's right. That's right. We can't sit still. But AI is going to fix all of that, right? Oh, yeah. Actually, yeah. Oh, sorry. I forgot. <clears throat> okay. This, this was the episode we were going to announce that we're not needed anymore, right? Because ChatGPT arrived. And if you haven't been on the ChatGPT is the latest AI tool that you can ask it any question and it will give you some kind of answer. It's up to you to decide if the answer is accurate or not, but it'll give you an answer. <laughs> so let's talk about AI and marketing. So my view is that AI is a tool. 
Sometimes a tool that takes you from point A to point B, it doesn't need any data from you. It needs a prompt and ChatGPT and the like are going to be like that. So, you know, if you remember Google's Lambda about two years ago, that was actually being positioned also as a almost sentient chatbot that was superb. And in fact, there's like really good research and capabilities in more than one company. So OpenAI has captured the limelight, but the competition is going to be intense. And the data that was used to train OpenAI is all publicly available texts everywhere and descriptions of audio everywhere and all of that. So that's just going to happen. Or there is like the use of AI to actually apply to your data to then make your marketing activity more effective. And that is a different kettle of fish. Yeah, I think what we're seeing right now is certainly what we're seeing publicly are these that have a built-in data bank of some sort. And then when you query it on something, it goes into that data bank and comes back with stuff. I think the interesting question that came up in the last week for me is those things are looking pretty interesting. There's a lot of ways that they summarize fairly quickly what they have in their data bank. But there's two kind of questions. One is, what's the weakness of the data bank? And we don't know that. Okay. The bias. The bias in it. And the other question is, they're getting big valuations, but how are they actually going to monetize? And hate to be a bit of a curmudgeon, but Lord, I've seen some uh, monetization efforts just completely destroy things. You know, Pinterest came out, provided a tremendous value to humans. You know, searching visually, working with visual things, connecting visual. I know artists, designers, and you know, just love Pinterest. And then they went off and monetized Pinterest and started filling it with ads so that people's Pinterest feeds are no longer very fun to them. And I know a lot of people who just have stopped using the platform because of that. I just don't know how they're going to monetize ChatGPT. Certainly if they sold it as a service and people would license it and things like that, might make real sense. You know, that yeah. might be a great way, but I'm not sure that I, my guess is that's not necessarily how they're going to monetize it. Well, what you don't want is blended advertising. Where the answers that it gives you magically include a mention of a particular product, <laughs> whether or not it's really quite so well related, but maybe even it is related and then it becomes, you know, a value add. But, you know, the other thing that systems like this kind of a chatbot technology can do is to help automate things. So there's already a pretty big market under the label of robotic process automation, where you observe a business process, whether it's report generation or form filling or such, and then you can automate that through software and through some level of AI. Just the discovery of what the process is and how you would describe it such that you can then automate it Mm-hmm. Is, is a big piece of that puzzle. So these technologies can target that and disrupt that market as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really interesting. And at the same time, you've got the audio AI that can mimic any voice and can put text to audio in a very, very high quality way. We've seen it with photos and images, mm-hmm. and videos. So all of this stuff is coming and marketing is going to be one of the first stops for this. So as a marketing organization, what do you do? I think you need to be A, prepared to take advantage of these tools when they come. And that means you have a explicit capability to experiment with these so that you know what the, what the state of the art is. And then apply them to your own data where your assignment is to make sure that data is high quality and it's complete. 
Yeah, and I think we should. We definitely all need to stay on on top of them. I think the other thing to do it would be for us to articulate a bit about what should we also be watching out for. I mean, it's not to attack them, but it seems like anytime anything new comes in, there's a, there's a, a naivete that comes with it that says, oh, this is perfect. It's going to solve so much, especially when it's kind of a miracle technology. We love miracle technologies. They're really fun. The downsides are often a little harder to see, so it might be useful to think about for in your marketing is look for where those where those downsides might be. I know that I've had problems, and I think a lot of people have had problems with even with the broad stroke generally available digital stuff like Google, where Google can make a change, and all of a sudden a company loses twenty five percent of its revenue because right. Google made that change. Or yeah. Amazon when they came out with ads, I know people who were selling very well through Amazon because there was a natural demand for their product. But when they allowed ads, all of a sudden, all the people would come in and buy all that. And these people who had naturally good products drop way down because they're not going to spend that money on advertising. So I think that, you know, you look at that, you say, okay, so we get involved with ChatGPT. We love it. It's doing a lot of good things. Where is the downside going to be to it? And I don't know what that is. You know, certainly we've seen with ChatGPT that it writes pretty bland copy. And a lot of people in marketing were like, well, we'll just use this to write first draft a copy. But I hate for first draft to be that bland. So, <laughs> Well, you don't notice that blandness until you try it a half a dozen times. But you're right, you absolutely get that. But it's definitely a topic that we're going to have to come back to over and over again. And you make a great point that the third thing you need to do is to watch out for mm-hmm. how this is going to work for real and what sort of dependence you're going to have on it. That might really impact your risk management. Well, and in particular, let me ask it this way. with Given the amount of competition that's there with it, to what degree can it be a competitive advantage for you? Or to what degree can your method of using it be a competitive advantage? Because a lot of that stuff's going to be pretty easy to knock off. And so, you know, just because you're the first company to use it doesn't give you any advantage in the marketplace over the long run. You have to find some really unique thing in how you apply it in order for it to become a competitive advantage. And I think those are always there, but it's going to take more work than just taking off the shelf chat GPT and saying, hey, I can ask it questions. You know, how does that really build an advantage for you? That's where I would be putting a lot of my thought right now. You're absolutely right. All right. Maybe this is a place to conclude this episode. Thank you, everybody. Really appreciate it and enjoy it. And the metrics are looking good. So thank you all. Until next time. Until next time. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. That's it for this episode of The Marketing Podcast. Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.